Good morning again. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Nehemiah chapter 4, which if you don't have a Bible, you can find it on page 400 uh, in the Bibles nearby. You'll see some under the chairs. So page 400 in the Black Bibles, Nehemiah chapter 4. We're continuing our series, Repairing the Ruins in Nehemiah. And we've just drawn some parallels uh, between how God has always been at work among his people. So we acknowledge there's big cultural differences between now and thousands of years ago in Israel, uh, but there's a continuity that the Apostle Paul points out in Romans chapter 11 where he says that his work in the church is continuing and being grafted into his work that he started in Israel. That's the stump of this tree that God is growing in the world. And so we are God's people, they were God's people, and Nehemiah heard the call to go back and rebuild God's city in Jerusalem so that his name and his fame could be broadcast to the world. Jerusalem was the place that housed the temple of God, and in the temple of God, uh, at the center of it, they had both the law of God and the mercy of God displayed through the sacrifices on the mercy seat uh, and the law stored in the Ten Commandments and the Ark of the Covenant, this box in the middle of the Holy of Holies. So at the center of their worship, they were singing songs to God, they were teaching God's word, they were offering sacrifices, and this was displaying that God is absolutely holy, and God is gracious and invites people into relationship with himself. And so in the same way, we broadcast that same message today. This is who God is. We invite the nations in to come and worship God, to come and know God. This week, we're calling it Fight and Build. We have this imagery in chapter 4 that whenever we start to build something good and beautiful that God calls us to, there will be opposition. There will be uh, forces in the world, natural forces, diabolical forces, pushing back against what we feel God has called us to do. So it's never just building, and it's never just fighting, but our life, like Nehemiah in chapter 4, is a life of fighting and building. We're trying to build something true and beautiful. We're trying to restore paradise to the world, but we're also fighting against the evil out there and the evil in our own hearts, our own temptation, our own sin. So let's read chapter 4, and we'll just read the first few verses, and then we'll read more as we go through it this morning. So in chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. So here the enemies of God's work are mocking and jeering and opposing what Nehemiah and the people of God are doing. And I would argue in the same way today, we are opposed by what the scripture refers to as the accuser. The Greek word is devil. Uh, The Hebrew word is Satan. Uh, But both of those words uh, mean accuser. There's one who mocks and accuses. There's one who opposes the work of God in the world. There's real evil that exists in the world. It's old-fashioned to believe so, but we do believe it. There's evil out there as well as in our own hearts that we need to fight if we're going to build anything that lasts in this world. So let me pray for us and we'll ask God to teach us. 
God, help us this morning. We pray that you would meet us where we are. You know we have doubts, we have questions. There's a lot of distance and time and history and culture between us and the story. We pray that you would help uh, us to just see our way through to the, the basic truths here, that we would see how you work in the world, that we would see the faith of Nehemiah and the followers of you in the story, and that that would encourage us in our faith. God, help us not to be cynics that give up on this world, but help us to be people of hope that make a difference. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when I was about 14, I remember a particular time that I was riding my bike. I used to love to ride my bike, uh, just kind of clear my head, get out, go places. And when I was 14, I still had this older bike that had actually been my dad's. And so, you know, it's like, I don't know when I was 14, maybe 1985-ish, somewhere around there. I mean, I'm riding my, bi- my dad's bike, which is probably built in 1965. So it was kind of a retro cruiser. I don't know if you remember these bikes with the kind of sit up. And they've kind of come back in style now. They, it wasn't cool then, but it's kind of come back in style. You know, with the handlebars up like this, and you've got the big seat with like the springs in it and everything. I really liked it as a teenager because it even had like a book rack on the back so I could put my friends on the book rack, you know, and we could cruise around like three of us on one bike. So I'm just kind of cruising through the neighborhood and I'm a suburban kid, grew up in the suburbs. It was a very peaceful, um, nice neighborhood. I mean, not like filthy, rich, wealthy neighborhood, but just a nice, peaceful neighborhood. I'd never been mugged, never been attacked in my neighborhood. And so I'm just cruising along, enjoying a bike ride, right? It's a beautiful uh, day in the summertime. The sun is starting to go down. It's just starting to get dark, but it's my neighborhood, so I know my way around, and I'm not scared, and I can find my way back to the house. But kind of out of the blue, I hear this noise as I'm riding my bike so peacefully. I hear this, <laughs> and it just scares me to death. And I turn back, and there is this giant wolf dog creature that is chasing after me, trying to eat me. Um, and so as you can imagine, I started pedaling faster, right? There was a seriousness that gripped me in that moment. There was a a call to action, a motivation that just grabbed hold of my heart. Even right now, my heart is beating faster as I remember. You know, like I'm getting kind of nervous. I'm getting hot now. And it's, this thing is chasing me. It's literally nipping at my heels, grabbing onto my pant legs. It's, I guess it was a German shepherd. I'm still not sure because it was kind of dark, right? So it was either a giant alien wolf creature or a German shepherd or something that was like this big. You know, I was, it's hard to remember now, but it was really huge. Um, like a big man-sized dog just chasing after me. And, and I think the, the story is a reminder to us that we can have these times in our life when we're just kind of cruising along, everything is peaceful, everything is nice, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, evil breaks out. Something's trying to kill us. Cancer pops up. Broken relationships happen. Disease, death, wh- whatever it may be, there's evil, there's brokenness, there's pain in this world. And it often takes us by surprise. And what I want us to understand is that that's actually the way the world is, and we should be alert and ready for it. Now, I think by personality, some of us lean towards builders. We want to build and create and make the world a better place, and we forget the fight that's required in this sinful, broken world. Some of us, by personality, tend towards fighters, right? And you want to, you're a high justice person, you're always looking for a fight. And I'd say, scripturally, we're really called to both. 
Some of us are better at one than the other, but we're called to both. We're called to fight the evil and the brokenness in the world, and we're called to build something beautiful. Uh, and as a community, we get better at that because we're good at different things, and we learn from each other in our diversity. But in Nehemiah 4, we have this great picture of both fighting and building. They knew that God called them to rebuild God's work in Jerusalem, but they also had to fight to make it happen. And so you have this picture in the story of fighting and building. In this world, we want to figure out what does that look like for us today? Obviously, it's not exactly the same, but I think the principles are the same. We live in a world that's broken. We're not in paradise yet. We, we want to bring more paradise here, right? We want to bring uh, God's kingdom to bear on earth as the Lord's prayer says. We pray for that. We work for that. But we also recognize it's still a world broken by sin. And so we're moving forward, fighting and building, fighting and building. In the scriptures, we're told in 1 Peter 5, your adversary, your, excuse me, your adversary, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So the scripture, again, testifies that this, this opposer is real. This embodiment of evil is real. And it's not just the devil, but it, there's also evil people. There's evil systems at work in this world. So when we try to build what is good and beautiful, we will be opposed. There is an evil force trying to oppose us. So the first thing I want us to recognize is that sometimes we forget that there is an enemy at all. Sometimes we're like me riding my bike. We forget there's an enemy. So there is an enemy to fight. If we're going to fight and build, we have to fight an enemy. There is an enemy. And as I said, that can be uh, personalized in, in the person of the devil, the accuser. But also there's problems in our own heart, right? Our own temptation to do what is evil and what's wrong. There's also broken systems in this world, in our communities. And so we have enemies to fight. There are real wrong things and wrong people in this world. Let's look again at the first few verses. We already read the opposition of these guys that wanted to fight the work. And I just want to make an aside, this is not racism when it lists their tribe, but this is more of a fight of faith. These are guys that don't trust in the God of the Bible. These are guys that trust in themselves and trust in idols, and they're opposing the worship of the true God of the Bible. The Old Testament people, Israel, were always a multi-ethnic people, just like the church is today. It's much more dramatic today in the church. It's much more clear the way the church has exploded throughout the book of Acts. It's much more uh, dominantly multi-ethnic now. But Israel was always multi-ethnic. It was never just one race. It was a tribe and a race that was always folding in believers from other races and tribes. And so I just want to clarify that in today's context. So we've got this guy that's a, uh, an Ammonite and a Sumerian and uh, we've got these people from these different tribes, and they're opposing God's work. They're opposing the rebuilding of God's people. And in verse 4, we have a prayer from Nehemiah. Nehemiah answers their opposition with a fight. He says, Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. This is a hard prayer for us to hear. Um, for one thing, because the New Testament emphasizes God's grace and forgiveness so much that it's hard for us to hear a prayer that asks for justice. And I think also it's difficult for us because culturally we live in a world 
that doesn't highly regard the justice and holiness of God. We live in a world that's really much more on the, on the end of the spectrum that believes God is this friendly guy that's asleep on the couch, right? But he's not really angry at sin. And we tend to translate and interpret the concept of grace and forgiveness into he never really cared about sin in the first place. But that is not at all the biblical picture of God. The biblical picture of God is actually kind of countercultural, and that is that God hates sin, that God is angry at sin. And we can't even stand to face that reality unless we understand that He's also gracious and He poured out His wrath on Jesus on the cross. So I think it's important for us to understand that God is angry at sin, that God is holy, that God is just, that every time we disobey Him, every time we make selfish decisions. Every time we worship things instead of him, we're offending the nature of God. And we deserve judgment. And we deserve wrath. And what I think might be helpful is if, if you've been really hurt, if evil and injustice has been uh, perpetrated against you, if you've been abused, I think it's much more helpful to understand that God hates evil than to just say God doesn't care. Don't you think? I think so often in our culture, we say, just forgive, and we say it in this kind of papering papering over kind of way, like just making light of it, like just forget about it. But what the Bible says is that God hates evil. God opposes the injustice that's been done to you. God opposes the abuse that's been perpetrated towards you. And, And I want you to understand that if you've been deeply hurt, understand that God hates evil. The other side of that is that we are all guilty. You may not be guilty to the same extent that other people have been. I mean, it's clear some some people's sins are big and some people's are small, but all sin offends God. So Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us fall short of his glory. None of us can bring a, a resume or an accomplishment into his presence and say, God, look what I've done. All of us are guilty. All of us deserve God's wrath. A really unpopular picture of God was perpetrated by Jonathan Edwards, right? He was this Puritan preacher who talked about sinners in the hands of an angry God. And one of the famous lines is he talks about us uh, being held like a spider web over the fire, or like a spider on a spider web over a fire, and that the flames could just devour us at any moment. And we don't like that, right? Because we, we want to only talk about the niceness and friendliness of God in our culture. But I think it really helps us to understand God's love and his grace if we understand how deeply he opposes and hates sin. God hates sin. He hates wickedness. He wants us to live righteously. And all of us deserve his wrath. And the good news of the cross is that God poured out his wrath on Jesus. That's what's so mind-blowing, that Jesus took God's wrath for us. That's what's amazing. And so, so grace is amazing, because Jesus took what we deserve. So our sins were punished on Jesus, and Jesus gives us his righteousness so that we can be loved and adopted by the Father. So that we see God as loving and not wrathful. So we can see him as gracious and see him as one who smiles upon us and one who scoops us up in his arms, like Jesus told the story of the prodigal son where the father ran to him. The father threw off all dignity and ran and embraced his son in love. So that's the picture we get of God, but we have to start with, we messed up, we sinned. We have to start with the justice 
of God. So there is evil in the world. As unpopular as it is to talk about these things, there really is evil in our own hearts. And out there, there is this being called the devil. There's this being called Satan. We're told that uh, tries to enlist us in hating God along with him and accuses us, tempts us to sin, and then condemns us when we do sin. And so again, First Peter gives the picture of this uh, lion that's prowling around to devour us. I have a picture here. Oh, wait, I was going to warn you before I showed you that. I'm going to show you some blood. Okay, you ready? Here we go. There's a picture of a lion eating a zebra. And I purposely tried to kind of find a gross picture. If you're in the back of the room, you probably can't see it. But it, kind of a gross, bloody picture just to kind of wake us up to what Peter is saying here. There, there's a seriousness to, there is a real enemy that, that wants to kill you and eat you. There's a real enemy that wants to kill you. There's two ways he does that. One way is he gets you to sin. He gets you to hope in creation instead of the creator. He gets you to hope in things instead of hoping in God himself. That's what sin is. Sin is saying, I've got to have this. I don't care so much about God. Breaking God's commandments because God is not really God in our life. Looking to things to be our savior whatever those things may be. We all have different brands of sin we engage in, but we're all breaking uh, the last nine commandments by breaking the first first. We have other gods, and because we have other gods, we break all the other commandments. And so the story of the Bible is this, this lion, the devil, really wants you to sin, wants you to oppose God along with him. And then when we do sin, and we all sin, right? We already read that, uh, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, then he accuses us. He hurls accusations at us. He reminds us of judgment. And as I said, to have a clear understanding of grace, we have to start with judgment. And that's the beauty of the cross is God takes the power of Satan and turns it against him. The, the power of evil in the world is sin and death. And so we are tempted to despair, but the cross reminds us that God has forgiven us. So, so we can start with what the devil tells us. You're condemned. And we can start with those accusations and say, you know what, you're right, but I found grace in Jesus. God has forgiven me in Jesus. Jesus took uh, what I deserved and gives me his righteousness so that when God looks at me, he loves me. He delights in me. He sees me as his child. He sees me as good and holy and righteousness. And so we fight the enemy of this world and our enemy with the gospel, with the good news of Jesus. I just want to start there and be very clear. I don't, that doesn't mean I don't believe there are real physical fights still to be fought in this world, but that's not the job of God's people per se. I believe, I believe in just war theory. I believe what it says in the scriptures, both Peter and Paul and Romans and in the letter to Peter, he talks about um, the ministers of the state or the servants of the state are given the power of the sword, right, to punish evil. I believe in that. I believe we still need police. We still need armies. But the church's job is not to fight that physically, but to fight evil with the gospel. That's the church's job. That's what we do as God's people. We do different things in our vocations in the world. Some of us fight evil as teachers. Some of us fight evil as doctors. Some of us fight evil as soldiers in the world through our natural vocations. But as God's people, we must remember also to fight evil with the gospel, with the truth of who God is, that we do deserve punishment, but Jesus took the punishment for us. So remember to fight 
the big enemy in this world. Remember also to fight for family. It's an interesting kind of strategy that Nehemiah takes here as we follow the story. If you'll read along with me, I'll pick it up in verse 6. It says, So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. It's one of my favorite uh, sentences in all of Scripture, Nehemiah 4, 6. These guys are opposing him. They're telling him they're idiots. They're jeering. They're accusing him. And what's Nehemiah's answer? So we built the wall. It's just so simple. You know what I mean? He just went about his business. He did his thing. And I think we have to have a little of that kind of like umph in our own life of we're constantly under attack. We're constantly being bombarded with accusation and condemnation. And we need to answer the devil, as I said, with the gospel. But then we just go about our business. We do what God's called us to do. So we built. We built the wall. It says they built it up to half its height. And then opposition comes back again. It's not like when the first time you confront a bully, that's it. He comes back. He keeps coming back. You have to keep confronting the bully. Verse 7 says, But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. Notice that. Remember that. We've seen this before. Nehemiah prays, and then he does stuff. He's not this kind of holy guru guy floating off on a mountaintop where he doesn't do anything and just prays. He said, we prayed, and we did stuff. We, we got the weapons together. We, we started making things happen. So we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In verse 10, it says, In Judah it was said, The strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. Rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And so people are freaking out. They're getting scared. People are nervous that they'll get killed, right? So there's talk. There's gossip happening. Verse 11, and our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. So the enemies are continuing the taunts. They're threatening. They're saying, we'll just be able to sneak up and kill them while they're working. They won't even know what happened to them. Verse 12, at that time, Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us 10 times, you must return to us. This translation is taking it as if the Jews in the suburbs and the surrounding towns were coming to the Jews that were crazy enough to do the work, saying, give up, come live with us in the suburbs, stop doing this crazy thing, stop trying to build the walls. Uh, Translators disagree on this, there's other versions of this, and it's kind of confusing. So I'd say, Scripture, interpret Scripture, when we have a verse that we don't fully understand, we know there's general confusion. Other translators think that this is about something that the outsiders were saying, And they were saying again and again, you know, return to us, come join our side. So translators are a little confused about the exact detail, but we know either way it fits in the flow of there's a battle happening and some people are being pulled this way and some people are being pulled that way and there's just fear and there's terror, right? There's a lot of confusion that's set in. And so in verse 13 it says, So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places I stationed the people by their clans, by their families, with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. So again, we see that earlier. I prayed and we set up guards. And now he's saying, remember the Lord. The Lord is awesome. He'll fight for you. Now, go fight for your families. Fight for your families. So as God's people, we always remember that God will fight for us, but that doesn't mean we sit cross-legged and do nothing. We still have to fight. 
We've seen that throughout Scripture. We pray, we say, God, go before me. God, help me. We still have to take action. Even as we pray and trust God, we have to act. We have to take steps. We have to do what he's called us to do. We have to be obedient. We can't just sit off on the sidelines praying. But we pray and we act. We fight and we build. And you see these things together. And I love how Nehemiah calls them to fight for their own families. I was talking to a friend uh, just last week at our Bible study on post about this whole idea of, of fighting for what matters in life. And he was talking about how hard it can be to be involved in a fight when it's abstract. Right? He was saying even as a soldier in the war on terror, sometimes it feels disconnected. You know, sometimes you, you misunderstand the mission or you misunderstand the importance. And he was talking about how as a soldier it would be much clearer and it would be much stronger in your own heart if you saw people encroaching on your own city, right? Or attacking your own family, your own neighborhood. And so that's the same kind of thing we see here. We see a clarity, a gripping clarity where Nehemiah says you have to fight for your own family. This is about your family. This isn't just some lofty ideal about this God who we've never seen and we're not sure about and it's some, something we learned in philosophy class. This is real. These people want to kill you. They want to kill your family. This matters. This is close to home. And so I'd say we need to understand that as well. And our own fight against sin and evil in the world in our own hearts as well as out there beyond our own families, we're, we're fighting for our own families. Some of you that are single or without family just hear this as you're fighting for the people you love, right? I'm not talking biological family necessarily. I'm just saying we're, we're fighting for those that are close to us. And our life impacts those around us. It, it matters what we do. It has an effect with those around us. It's not just simply when we sin, sin is not something that just happens over to the side and it doesn't affect anybody. It, it affects the community that we belong to. It breaks people's hearts. It misleads people. It tears the fabric of our communities. And that's always the biblical view of sin. I have a picture here of a family reading a story together. And I would uh, encourage you, uh, even if you're not models in stock photography, I would encourage you to be a family that reads the Bible together at home, that prays together at home. And guys, I always want to encourage you as, as fathers, man, take the lead whenever possible. Um, I'm, I'm a trained pastor. I've been a children's pastor, youth pastor. Um, now I'm a grown-up pastor, right? I guess is what you'd call it. And uh, so, so I've got a lot, of, a lot of experience, you know, leading kids, praying with kids. And I've said this multiple times, but I want to say it again so that you hear this. Dads, you're never going to feel like you're really awesome at this, right? When you're reading a Bible story to your kids, they're going to wiggle and they're going to not pay attention. Uh, and when you're praying with your wife or with your kids, you're going to feel stupid, right? Like, that, that's just how it works. I, I do too, and I do this for a living. So I just want to encourage you. It's not about you feeling awesome about yourself. It's about doing things that matter. So I just encourage you to be uh, a man who leads your home with prayer and with Scripture. Some of you, there is no dad in the home. Moms, lead your family with prayer and Scripture. Some of you are singles. Lead your friends, your buddies, and make your home, your place, a place of prayer and scripture. I have a friend named Gary DeSalvo. He pastors the church in Temple that I used to work at, and an old mentor of mine. And uh, the, the church, Temple's kind of an older city, and the congregation's a little bit older, so he does a lot of funerals. And one of the things he says all the time, uh, talking about reference to funerals, 
is that he gets really frustrated when he's doing uh, a funeral and he's talking to the children of the deceased and those children don't know anything about the spiritual story of the man who's died or the woman who's died. And so he says this all the time to the men at the church over there. He says, make sure you tell your children your spiritual story. Make sure you tell them what you believe. Make sure they understand who you worship and why. And he says, if I come to do your funeral and I find out that your children have never heard your story, I'm going to thump you in your dead head. (laughs) Now, he's from New Orleans, you know, so they kind of talk that way there. Um, So I'm I'm not quite as aggressive. I'm a little more of a nice guy. So so if, if that happens for me, if I come to do your funeral and I find out that your kids haven't heard your spiritual story... I'm going to call Gary, and he's going to come thump your head, okay? Because you need to share those things with those that are close to you. Again, we, we live in community. So again, if you're, if you're single or you don't have a family, don't hear this through the, oh, they're talking about families, I'm going to turn my mind off. This is about caring for those that are close to you. Do you invest in those that are close to you? Do you care for them? Do you care enough to fight? Do you recognize what's broken in the world, and are you going to fight for it? We're told how to fight in Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6 talks about the spiritual battle. I know those of you in the military know how to fight like Nehemiah, okay? So let's talk spiritually here. How do we fight spiritually? In Ephesians 6, it says it this way, put on the armor of God to stand against the schemes of the devil. And so this is the armor of God. He talks about again and again, multiple pieces of armor, which are the gospel. He talks about our shoes and our belt and our breastplate, and our helmet, and he talks about all these things in terms of the righteousness that Christ gives us by faith. He sums it up in a phrase here where he says, put on the readiness given by the gospel. Talks about the righteousness of Christ, faith, justification, salvation. All of these things are summary phrases saying, suit up and put on the good news of Jesus. And we have to do that every day. We have to put it back on because we forget it. Because we're tempted by the world and our own flesh and the devil to forget the goodness of God that's displayed in the gospel. So we have to retell ourselves this. And as we retell ourselves this story of a God who's absolutely just, but he's gracious through Jesus, that is how we suit up. That is how we put on our armor. That's how we protect ourselves from the temptation of the devil. And then he also says, pull out the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So be armed and ready with the word of God. Know scripture. Read scripture. Sink your roots down into scripture so that you can handle these temptations. And then he says, pray at all times in the spirit. Call out to God for help. We've seen that twice in this section. We've seen we prayed to God and we set up a guard. He said, remember God is great and fight for your families. So that's, that's how you fight for those you love. That's how you fight for your families is by dressing yourself in the gospel, the good news of Jesus, knowing and wielding the word of God, and then praying and asking God for help. The next thing that we see as we move through this text is that we are to fight till death. We are to fight till death. We are to persevere. We are to keep going because we're going to be tempted to give up, Right? We're going to be tempted to give up, but we need to keep going, keep persevering. If you pick up in verse 15, he says again, here they come, the bully comes back, and our enemies heard that it was known to us, and that God had frustrated their plan. We all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction, and half 
held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah. Really like, again, that image of half are armed and half are building. So we have this balance, again, of fighting and building. Some of Nehemiah's personal servants are fighting. Some of Nehemiah's personal servants are building. And then he goes on and makes it even more vivid here with this other image. He says uh, in verse 17, uh, those who were building the wall, those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. So even more vividly now, you know, he's saying, my personal servants, I had half of them as fighters, half of them as builders. And then he said, those who were carrying burdens, one of them was doing work with one hand uh, while he, in the other hand, held a weapon. A lot of times the image that's used is the sword and the trowel. Have you all ever heard that phrase before? It's kind of an old uh, phrase that's used. It's been used by like Christian newspapers and different things like this. But it's the idea of as people who are doing God's will in the world, we're always holding a sword in one hand and a trowel, which is what you scoop up the mortar to build a brick wall or stone wall, a trowel in the other. You're always building and fighting, fighting and building. It's always both. It's never one or the other in this world. So we have this beautiful picture here of people always holding a weapon with one hand while they're building with the other. Verse 18 says, And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me, and I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, The work is great and widely spread, and we're separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there, our God will fight for us. So again, we've, we've got both sides of it. He's saying, this is how we're going to fight. Come here. When I sound the trumpet, come to the place where the trumpet is and we'll all join forces together. But God will fight for us. God will fight for us. Verse 21, so we labored at the work and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So again, a lot of these guys lived in the suburbs, but they're saying, all right, we're just all going to camp here. So we can stay armed, stay ready, and keep building. We're not going to keep going out to the hills to sleep at night. We're going to all just stay together uh, and have strength in numbers and stay armed. He goes on and gives a more vivid description of remaining armed. He says in verse 23, So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. So taking off clothes is defined by holding your weapon, right? He's talking about battle clothes. He's not talking about nakedness here in general. He's just talking about we kept our battle dress on, right? We kept our, what's it called, plate holders? Is that it? Someone told me after service. I said flak jacket. He was like, say this. It'll sound like you know what you're talking about. And I can't even remember what he said. (laughs) Body armor. Yeah, so uh, they kept their armament on. They kept their weapons on. They had their swords strapped at their side. I, I had a picture here I found. This is a... A buddy's roommate, okay? So if this is illegal, don't press charges here, but this guy is sleeping uh, with his gun there. He's just taking an afternoon nap with his gun in his lap. Seems a little crazy, right? Seems a little obsessed, but if you're under attack, it makes sense. And that's uh, what they lived through here. They stayed armed. They kept uh, their weapon at their side. They didn't take off their clothes, put on their silk pajamas, and kick back and relax. They just stayed armed all the time. Neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. And so we have this idea of of just always being ready, right? Of always having our weapon strapped at our side. Remember what we saw in Ephesians 6, what's the weapon spiritually that we fight with? 
The weapon we fight with is God's Word. And so I'd really encourage you, even if you're not a, a deep Bible student, I'd encourage you to memorize portions of the Scriptures so that you're always ready. You're always ready to share. You're always ready to combat what is wrong with the world through the gospel, the good news of Jesus. There's four scriptures that I would really encourage you to memorize from Romans. It's often called the Romans Road, and these are just four verses you can memorize that kind of package the good news for you. So if you memorize these simple verses, you can just kind of have something to fall back on of knowing the truth of scripture, right? One's the one I already talked about, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Um, That just is, again, the starting point of we deserve his wrath. We're under judgment. We've fallen short of his glory. Then Romans 6.23 talks about the wages of sin is death. We deserve his wrath, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So that exchange, that substitution. Romans 5.8 reminds us of his love. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So the whole picture of God coming after us in Jesus. And then Romans 10.9 that says that if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord and he's been raised from the dead, then you will be saved. The simplicity of the gospel, that you can call out to him and be forgiven and be saved. So strap those weapons to your side. Say memorize those, write them down on a card, stick them on your mirror, begin to learn those scriptures so that you're always ready to talk about what you believe and to to wield the sword of the spirit, as it says in Ephesians chapter 6, so that you can fight and build in this world. My friend Frank Leeson, who is one of our Global Outreach Partners that works in Germany. Um, and Germany is a very, what we would call post-Christendom place, a, a place where Christianity and faith at all just seems ridiculous to the common people there. And what Frank talks about is this sense of spiritual power that comes over him every time he has the guts to speak up about Jesus and who he is. Every time he has the guts to talk about the cross and what Jesus did for us, He says, I have this incredible experience of the Holy Spirit meeting me in those moments. Because it's scary. It's scary to fight. It's scary to talk about things that our culture thinks are stupid, right? Because we we want people to think we're smart. We we want people to approve of us. We want to fit in. Um, But if we really believe that there's evil in the world, if we really believe that the evil's out there but it's also in us, then the gospel is our only hope. What Jesus did for us on the cross is our only hope. Hope, our only solution. So be ready. Be ready to talk about this truth. Well, I want to conclude as we think about the idea of us being people that both fight and build. I want to conclude by remembering that that's what Jesus did for us. As we fail, as we stumble, right? Because we all screw this up. As we fail, we remember that Jesus is the one that did it all the way. He's the one that did it right. Jesus is the one that fought sin and death for us by dying in our place. It says in the Gospel of John, greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And that's what Jesus did for us. He fought for us to the death. And then he also says in John 14, not leaving you as orphans, but I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to build a home for you. And so even as we are stuck in this world of sin and brokenness and death and confusion, and we're fighting and we're building and we're growing weary, remember that he's preparing a a permanent home for us. He has fought for us to free us from sin and death, and he is now building a home for us, a future where there's no more tears, no more pain, no more crying, no more sorrow. And that's what we look forward to.
And that's what gives us the strength to continue here and now. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you gave yourself for us in Jesus. That you thought we were worth fighting for. God, it blows our mind. That even though we deserve wrath, you've revealed yourself as this father that runs after us and embraces us in love. You revealed yourself in Zephaniah 3.17 as one who delights in us and sings over us. We thank you for that truth. And I pray that it would strengthen us to continue to fight and to build for what is true and good and beautiful in this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.